Good evening, everyone. Thank you for attending. We'll continue with Srila uh, Yuva Goswami's seventh Anucheda from the <coughs> Paramatma Sandarbha, a rather extensive Anucheda dealing with the concept of Achinta Beta Beta Tattva and specifically how the Supreme Lord can manifest the material universe from his very self, his very being, still remain completely unaffected because that's really what we're talking about. The problem that transcendentalists have with that is, well, the Lord, he's unchanging, he's constant, he's especially those that only view the Supreme Absolute Truth from the from the Brahman platform, from the platform of seeing no distinctiveness in the Supreme. Actually, to the point that they don't recognize that the Supreme actually has a transcendental form and transcendental qualities. They see the Supreme as just a, a, a an absolute manifestation without any distinctive qualities whatsoever. Because once you attribute some quality to the Supreme, they have a misconception where that brings the Supreme down to our level of material existence. So it's, it's, it, it's an illusion to try to do that. So any conception we may have of a, a Supreme with a form and to the jiva being distinct from the Supreme, we have to explain that away in a particular manner so that it conforms with our idea of Brahman. So they have an interesting way of doing that. They say that the uh, if, if we impose an upadi, a conception, upon Brahman that's sattvic in nature, then we could look at that as God. And if it's so pure sattva of Brahman within the material universe, we have, we have a Godhead, which gives us some ability to, to conceive of, of, of the Lord. But in the ultimate issue, that, that has to be cast off. Those kind of thoughts are not going to work for them. They have to, they have to push them aside. So it's both the Brahma bodies and the Maya bodies who have a difficulty with this. Yes, the Brahma bodies will accept that the Supreme can have form. If they didn't accept that, then they would never be successful in their pursuit of merging into the Supreme. But their ideal is such that. It's not the desire, the desirability of their, of their practice. And then you have the Mayavadi. The Mayavadi is one that that more or less adheres to the, the ideas that any conception of of the absolute truth within material nature, well, that has it has to they have that's Maya. Maya, it's all all an illusion. So we're dealing with this concept of a chinta beta beta tattva and how to properly 
see this concept and how to properly understand that that supreme absolute truth can manifest the material universe and still be unaffected by that manifestation of his Shakti. That manifestation of his Shakti goes through changes and therefore the proper terminology for the material manifestation is Shakti Parinamavad, the modification of the Shakti of the Supreme. That's the proper understanding. And here, in this Anucheta, what's being reviewed here and thoroughly explored is why that concept is superior to the concept that would say that the universe is simply an illusion. And the illusion, the terminology for illusion is vivartavad. So we'll continue our discussion. We are in the Anucheta property proper. This is what Jiva's written here. We're not in the commentary. And he's using the prayers of the personified Vedas from the 87th chapter of the 10th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam to bring out the various philosophical truths regarding this Parinamavad. Because these, the points that he's bringing up here, it's not that they haven't been thoroughly brought up before and discussed before. These questions come up again and again, and therefore we have a scriptural canon which has dealt with these, you know, what do they say? There's nothing new in the world. People are not coming up with new arguments, and they're not coming up with new misconceptions. These are the same misconceptions that have been around in different permutations, but they're there because people are pursuing spiritual enlightenment and they're utilizing the Vedas, which we know are a constant from one creation to another, from one universe to another. The Vedas are, are coming because they're, they're coming from Krishna himself. So these questions, when the when the when when the jivatma comes to the platform of the human human form of life and starts to ask, why am I here? Where did I come from? Is there a god? If there's a god, why can't I see him? Why you know? And so we have all these questions, and they've they're, they're recurring questions once the human. Once we, once we get past those basic necessities of existence, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, which are consistent throughout all the different species of life, and we come to the human form of life, then these questions can bubble up from time to time in people that are thoughtful, depending on the degree to which the modes of material nature influence their, our consciousness as a human being. So the more we're influenced by the mode of ignorance, mode of passion, yeah, they're not going to come up so much. We're 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 more or less well, we're an animal in a human body, but that doesn't 
that does not push aside the possibility to be influenced significantly by the mood of, mode of goodness, where we start to inquire, where we start to move away from an entirely exploitive mentality, which is your mode of which is your mode of passion. Mode of ignorance is you just just don't give a damn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you there's no there's no real real concern. Mode of passion is a little bit better. You want everything, <laughs> and you're going to do everything within your power to to get those and to satisfy those wants and those needs. Mode of ignorance is yeah, whatever comes my way is fine. You know, why, why waste the time? Uh, you know, so we can kind of see that. We can see that in human society. See that in ourselves, how we yeah. become indifferent. To, to, to. Oh, and we can see the mode of goodness, and, and the mode of goodness leads to enlightenment. <clears throat> so the Anucheta continues, and we'll read as follows. The Shrutis, again, these are the Shrutis, the prayers of the personified Vedas, from the 87th chapter. The Shrutis then raised a further objection from the point of view of Vivartavad. So they don't need an opponent. The Shrutis do not require an opponent to put for, forth an opposing idea. They've already dealt with these ideas comprehensively. So we're talking about the personified Vedas, the personified scriptures. They've already dealt with all these things in, in all their different manifestations as the scriptures that, that are there to assist humanity in making material and spiritual progress. So they're raising the objection themselves. They don't need someone who, like ourselves to say, well, what about this? No, and not only do they raise the objections themselves, but they raise them in the most comprehensive and thorough manner so that they can be dealt with completely. Just like we find here, we're in, a, we're in an Anacheta where Jiva Goswami, he's, you know, this is, a, this is a huge thing to him. And he wants to really establish that for, for our edification and for our realization I mean, we're supposed to realize it's not like this is not book learning. We need to understand Achinta, Beta, Beta, Tattva from all angles to where it really works for us, where we can understand. Yeah, there's nothing here that doesn't make logical sense according to everything that I've heard from the scripture, everything I've heard from my spiritual master, and it's all in concordance with everything I've heard from the other sadhus, and I've read in other books, and it all makes sense. So we go before the guru, and he explains, and, and the, the Lord is manifesting in so many ways to give us instruction so we can we can navigate our way out of this material world. But don't be delusioned. You have to navigate your way out of the world yourself. You can, you can, you know, the spiritual master, he'll hold your hand and he'll take you there and explain everything. But you're the one that's got to want it more than anything. And in the beginning, we don't want it so much. 
In the beginning, we're kind of, you know, lukewarm. Of course, no, who, no one knows where someone's beginning is, where that beginning, some devotees come and they're a hell of a lot warmer than lukewarm. They, they're, you know, they're renouncing the world out of the gate in their 20s. They're, you know, they're already completely immersed in studying scripture for hours every day and, and serving the guru totally selflessly. So, but, so when we say in the beginning, we don't mean this body, this beginning. This is one beginning of probably many beginnings that we've had in devotional service. What we want to do is we want to get to that body where it's the end. <laughs> where it's the end, which means that we're totally convinced and we're to there's no nothing left. We've exhausted all of the possibilities that material nature has to offer us. We're done. Nothing else. There's nothing else I can do here that's going to satisfy me. So I might as well just give my everything lock, stock, and barrel to the service of Guru and the devotees and Krishna. That's that's and we see the sadhus. There's sadhus in that platform, and the rest of us we're chanting. We may be chanting. We're not tasting. Why aren't I tasting? I'm not tasting because there's ten offenses, and I'm performing those. Well, I need to recognize that. I don't become become neurotic. Oh my God! I thought a bad thought, or I, you know, I uh, I chanted around, and my mind was thinking of uh, you know something I had to do today, or something I did tomorrow, or something I'd like to do next month, or the wife I'd like to have, or had, or will have, or maybe I could go to this planet, or where could I move to another ashram? I'm not happy here, and you know. So the mind's going through all this all the time. But why is the mind getting away with it? It's because it's it's we're, we haven't really come to the platform of of putting to rest, you know, these offenses to the holy name. It's okay. We don't become neurotic. We recognize them for what they are. And we continue to chant. And if there's anything that will do away with the most serious of offense, it's that we continue chanting. We may offend a sadhu and have to take a whole lifetime of chanting just to get over it. The offense may chase us around the universe. Who was it that offended Ambarish? This offense chased him around the universe. He could not find shelter anywhere. One thing about offenses, though, the holy name will give you shelter if you're in a circumstance where you just haven't got the the spiritual potency to to beg the forgiveness of those that you've offended. And that's also a possibility. Recognize it. Try to get up to the point where you can. You know, if, if we've done something that that uh, is interfering with our service like that. But there is always shelter in the holy name. It may take a while. It may take a long while. But don't give that up. Don't give up the association of devotees. All right, so the Shrutis, back to the text. The Shrutis are raising an, their own objection here. They're raising a further objection. And they're raising an objection that would be put forward by those who believe Vivartavad. What's Vivartavad? 
the material world has to be an illusion because it doesn't conform with the characteristics because we see in the world that there's non-total conformity with the qualities that exist within Brahman. The material world goes through changes. It's endlessly mutable, as we said. So, therefore, it's not, it's not the same as Brahman. Brahman's the same in past, present, and future. The material world has a past that's different for, from its present and will be different from its future. Yes, it's not sought. So whatever isn't sought is asat. It's an illusion. Or the cause, if we're to say that Brahman is the cause of the universe, the, the effect is not the same in every way. But we find, within the, we find within the world that where there is a cause, the effect has the same characteristics. We don't find that the material manifestation has the same characteristics of Brahman. Therefore, our only we can only arrive at one conclusion. The material world is false. From the, from the, from the, from, by definition, it has to be false. That's the, that is the idea of those that accept the Vartavad. So the, they just say, we are not trying to establish non-distinction between cause and effect or between God and the universe here. Rather, because the universe arises from the reality as an earring is manufactured from gold, we are, will first establish the difference and then deny it. This will then imply non-difference, will it not? So this is the way they're going to do it. They're going to show, they're going to use this kind of approach. We're going to show that the universe, you know, what is it? We, we will first establish the difference, that the universe is different from Brahman, it's different from the absolute truth, that the Lord who manifested the world is different from the world that he manifested. Whatever, whatever school of thought you may have there regarding the absolute position of the Supreme. So, we will first establish that the difference does, does exist. Then we would deny that there is actually a difference. And then that, by, that, that way we will prove the truth. So they go on in this, in this way. Now this gets a little, little theistic here, a little bit of, of, of that deep logic. So, now the Shrutis revert to their own view of Parinam Vad, and they say this. Expecting this line of argument, the Shrutis find fault in the reasoning because it contains the fallacy known as Anaikantika Hetu, wherein the concomitance of the reason Hetu with that which is, attempts to prove the Sajja is not absolute, known in Western logic as the fallacy of the undisturbed middle. All right, sounds convoluted. I don't have a full enough grasp of, of, of the depth that's here, but I want to give you an idea of what we're talking about so that you can see what the, what the logic that's being implied here by the Shrutis to, to make their point. So I'm going to jump ahead to a definition of a term 
um, regarding this kind of reasoning. Because we just heard this, you know, the middle isn't being distributed properly in the analogy. So there's a disturbed middle. So therefore they say it's a, a hey to a boss. The logic falls apart. What, what kind of logic are you talking about? So what we're talking about is syllogism. All right. Now let's get a that. What's a syllogism? How's it work? You, we've actually heard them. We, we've had some experience of them. It's nothing new. So this is the definition. An instance of a form of reasoning in which the conclusion is drawn, whether validly or not, from two given, from two given or assumed propositions, premises, each of which share a term with the conclusion and share a common or middle term, that's important here, not present in the conclusion. An example. Ready for an example? Think about it. All dogs are animals. Agree? Okay. Except stuffed ones. Stuffed animal. All animals have four legs. All dogs are animals. All animals have four legs. Therefore, all dogs have four legs. So that's a syllogism. It, it's, a, it's a logical conclusion that we could arrive at. It's simple. So we have the common points. The common point in the first statement is what? A dog. It's common to the last statement, all dogs. So a dog is an animal, and the last statement is all dogs have four legs. So we have dog at the beginning and the end. And then we have um, and then we have the common middle ground. Dogs are animals. Animals have four legs. So dogs are animals, then it goes to the middle, animals have four legs. So we got animals. In the, there's no animals in the last statement. But what's in the last statement is what? The four legs. Then we have the four legs. The four legs is in the middle of the statement, the four legs is in the final statement. So therefore, it's a log we can come to a logical conclusion. Now, that's, that's what the kind of logic is being discussed here. Syllogism. Syllogism. Right. So, all dogs are animals. All animals have four legs. All dogs have four legs. So, we have a hey to a boss. This terminology that they're using here is when you're using that kind of logic, and whether it be three steps or five steps, you, you know, people arrive at conclusions in different ways, in different logical ways. If if the, the terminologies don't carry through properly, it's called an abbas. It looks like logic, but it just doesn't work. It just, it just, come on. You can't arrive at that conclusion using that kind of logic. That's kind of what we're 
that's being discussed here. Okay, you can't really arrive at the conclusion that the universe is an illusion, you know, just because of the way you're stating the facts is basically what the Shrutis are saying here. So what didn't the Shrutis take into consideration in their argument that made their conclusion illogical because it seemed to make sense from a logical viewpoint it seemed to make sense that the universe goes through changes Brahman doesn't so therefore it's uh, you're mixing sat and a sat so therefore, we, we don't want to do that. We have to arrive at a conclusion that the universe is really an illusion. That's, that's the argument that's being presented. and Or that the cause, that the universe has, the effect of the universe appears to be different than the cause. In other words, Brahman has certain non-characteristic characteristics, <laughs> so to speak, you know. Um, so, and we don't see those in the universe. So we don't see that the cause is, it has within it the effect. So therefore it has to be an illusion. And the, the logic they use, it's like the illusion of silver in an oyster. We see silver in an oyster shell. So, therefore, that's an appropriate logical explanation why you can't accept the universe as sat, as real. We see the fallacy. We kind of see how there could be an undistributed middle. It doesn't distribute to the, to the first assumption and the last assumption correctly. So, Western logic calls it an undistributed middle. They say sometimes there is a deviation in this principle. That's what the Shruti say. Wait a minute. Sometimes there's a deviation in this principle that's acceptable. Meaning that in some instances the characteristics of a cause do not follow into the effect in some instances. In other words, there is no rule that an effect, the material manifestation in this instance, must correspond in every single aspect to the attributes of its cause. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be Brahman. The world doesn't manifest, it doesn't have to be Brahman in every respect to, to be real. Okay? For example, light arises from fire, but does not have the capacity to burn. So let's think about that, what the Shrutis are saying here. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an explanation that makes perfect sense, really. I can have a firebrand. We've used this, this explanation of a firebrand before. Now, what can I do with a firebrand? I have a stick, and it's burning on the end. and We call that a firebrand. So... And it was it was used as an example when referring to to what the nature of the nature of of the relationship between Maya and 
and fire being the representation of, of, of the supreme absolute truth, and then the material nature being the wood stick and the smoke being Maya and the sparks being the Jiva. But we're using it, take that, not using it in that way now. Now we're saying I got a firebrand. Now what's the nature of the firebrand? It's, it contains fire on its end. But one, and it's a cause. And what's it cause? Well, not only is it fire, which means it can cause more fire, it can also cause light. So, well, the light's not like the fire. With the fire, I can start another fire. It, with the firebrand, I can go up to you and burn you. So it's not exactly alike. So you have a cause and you have a result, an effect. But they're not exactly alike, but they're still reality. Light. Light comes from a firebrand. Light, but the fire can burn you. The light doesn't burn you. The light can light up the room. So it's not what the Shrutis are saying. Wait a minute. It's not that every effect has to have in it every constituent as the cause. Then Jiva Goswami substantiates the statement. He first quotes from the Vishnu Purana. Absolute reality, Brahman, has two features, morta with form and amorta, formless. These two features can be either perishable or imperishable in nature and are situated in all living beings. The Supreme Brahman is imperishable, Aksara, and this entire cosmos is the perishable, Sara. That's from the Vishnu Purana. So, now we could say, well, let's explain that fully so we can see, you know, that would, that would enter, enter, we would enter into another very deep under, philosophical discussion as to how this statement has been arrived at and is, and is presented in the Veda, and specifically in the Vishnu Purana. As a, as as scripture as a scriptural text, but we're not going there right now. The point is the scripture says because the scripture says that Brahman can both be changeless. I mean, I'm sorry, Brahman can both have form and be formless. Therefore, that's an evidence to support my idea. Now, if you want to go back and look at that evidence and break it down into parts. That's a whole other other thing, uh, another logical inquiry that we're not making. And Vish, you know, Jiva Goswami's not going there. Then he gives you another evidence. So you have to. We accept scripture. There has to be some reality in the fact that the scripture said Brahman can be have both form and lack form. So now, how we how we go through and get the and and validate that evidence from the scriptures and remember scriptures is an interesting thing sometimes scripture doesn't validate itself it uses strange things like a chinta it's a chinta it's inconceivable 
But the interesting thing about the use of words like that, achinta, in scripture is what? Well, but it makes perfect sense when you look at all the scriptural canon and all the wealth of knowledge there, what's inconceivable becomes completely conceivable. What's contradictory can be looked at comprehensively from both sides and accepted as truth. That's called realization. An interesting point in this regard. I was just reading, I'm reading from the third canto now in the Bhagavatam. And in, there's an interesting comment by Maitreya to Vidura. Uh, one thing he says, because he, he, was in, he heard directly from Krishna. And uh, he also heard from other Parasar, whatever. But um, he's talking to Vidura, and he says, and Vidura's asked a lot of questions, and then he starts praising Vidura. Oh my gosh, the world is now. He's say, basically saying, just that you're asking these questions, the world has now become successful. That's that's his statement to the student. That you've even come up to me and ask these questions, the whole world, you've blessed the whole world just by your questions, just by your inquiries. Material existence now has validity because someone like you has asked questions pertaining to self-realization, pertaining to the nature of the Supreme. Now the whole world makes sense. You're the greatest contribution to humanity at large because you've come to this platform of, of life where you're asking questions like this. And he says to him at that point, he says, now I'll answer your questions. And I'll answer your questions according to what I've fully realized by hearing. But I won't be able to tell you everything that I've heard. Because there are things that I've heard that I'm not fully realized in yet. So he's saying, I'll repeat knowledge to you according to my realization. But my guru is so much greater than me. He told me things I can't even wrap my mind around yet. So I won't be explaining things I can't explain. I won't be, what do we call that? I won't become, in the name of being your teacher, because Maitreya is taking the position of the teacher of Adora, I won't become what? I won't become a, a, a parrot. I'm not here just to parrot what I've heard. I'll, I will repeat what I've heard and assimilated, what I've realized. This question I put to my guru, and he answered in such a way that I could fully assimilate what he was talking about. In answering, he said other things, but I'm not there yet. So I can't, can't in good faith, pass those things on. I'll speak and answer your questions the way I, what I've realized. So, it's a revelation. It's not, it's, it's so much beyond intellectualization. 
Jiva Goswami goes on and, and quotes another verse from the Vishnu Purana. Just as the light of a fire situated in one place is diffused all around, so also the energy of the Supreme Brahman pervades this whole universe. Now, he, he, this particular part of the Adicheta is concluded here with, with a comment by the great commentator on Srimad Bhagavatam, Sridhar Swami, and how he explained what the Shruti, what this verse, this portion of the 87th chapter, what the, what the Shrutis, you know, he, he's giving some commentary, some additional information from his viewpoint of, of, uh, to explain what, what, what's, what we should walk away from these statements with. Sridhar Swami comments on this in the following manner. This verse is spoken in response to the anticipated question arising from the two preceding verses. One, how can the imperishable Supreme Brahman have a perishable form, the material manifestation, different from itself? Parasara here substantiates his earlier statement with the help of an example. Just as the burning capacity of a fire or lamp situated in one location gives rise to light or radiance, this that is distinct in quality, which then spreads all around and is not limited to its source. Similarly, this whole universe is the expansion of the potency of Brahman. So he's kind of just unpacking a little bit of the fact that you have a fire, the fire creates light, the light is definitely distinct. In fact, you can put the light, you know, in a corner where you can't even see the source of the light, but still the room's light, you know, lit up. So it, there's a real distinction there. But you can't say that that disqualifies the light from being real. Light's real. It can light up the room. What doesn't it do that Brahman can do or the fire can do? Can't burn you. Unless you want to get out a magnifying glass, but that would be a whole other discussion. So We would call that like Shintamani now. Something's doing something extraordinary. <clears throat> I want to read the first line of the commentary by Sachin Narayan Das and then kind of just go to the conclusion after I walk through one syllogism. So, if Brahman, the unchanging reality, Sat, is the cause of the universe, then the universe must also be an unchanging reality because an effect should have the characteristic of its upadan cause, the ingredients that make it up. The opponent argues that, since this is clearly not the case, it must be concluded that the universe is unreal, a sot. You, you just, you know, it's just not real. Why don't you just accept that? This is the first objection to the conclusion bore out of the Parinam Vod. Remember, he's really, he wants to unpack this Parinam Vod and explain it so thoroughly that we can completely accept and comprehend this, this idea of a chinta beta beta tattva, that God 
can manifest his energy and not be affected by that manifestation of energy. So this is the first. The opponent argues that since this is clearly not the case, it must be concluded that the universe is unreal, a sot. This is the first objection to the conclusion bore out of Parinamavad, namely that the universe is a changing reality, unlike its source. But if the universe is perishable, then why would this not support the theory of Vivartavad? So why win? That's what, basically what we're saying. The, the illusionists are saying, I win. It's an illusion. Not so fast. Okay. This is the second objection. So that's, that's kind of where Jiva's going. This is the depth of, of, of unpacking of this idea that, he, that he's bringing out. <clears throat> the first objection addresses itself to the five-step syllogism on the pattern of the, pattern of the Nyaya school as follows, based on the way they think, the Nyaya, the logicians. They think in a certain way. So let's look at the way they look at this. So he take, breaks down the five parts. The universe is sought, okay, because it has arisen from sought. So the universe is real because it's arisen from reality. That's, our, that's fine. We're good with that. Whatever is generated has the qualities of, a, of its upadan cause, as golden ring real, earrings have the qualities of gold. The universe is arisen from sought, Therefore, the universe is sought. It is objected that this inference is faulty because an effect may not have all the qualities of its cause. For example, light does not burn even though it is generated from fire. Then there's a, there's a, a very deep multi-paragraph uh, unpacking of the logic, this whole logical debate. Um, and in that, we're also presented with this hey to a boss. Uh, so we've, we've just heard a syllogism that makes sense. Let's hear one that doesn't make sense. The mountain is on fire. Okay, the mountain's on fire. Because it is knowable. It's knowable. You can know a mountain. This isn't a boss. This is faulty logic. Whatever is knowable, like an oven, is on fire. Okay? The mountain is knowable. Therefore, the mountain is on fire. So, you can see, the middle is what? It's not distributed properly from the beginning to the end. It sounds real cool, but the fact of the matter is, that just made no sense at all what you said. So the whole explanation here in this Anacheda and the, the unpacking that's going on by Satchinarayandas is to lead us into the, the ability to ascertain what is proper and what is faulty logic according to the Nyaya schools of logic. Yeah, we're kind of like into the Bhakti school of logic where, you know, let's just jump to the chase. 
Krishna's God. But no, there's some there's some necessity here. This fortifies these arguments fortify our standing in some bandagyan. It's not that we just you know push them aside and say no no give me the leela. And that's another interesting thing from the third canto discussion between Maitreya and Vidura. Vidura at a point he's 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 asking more questions and he he's presenting these questions to to Maitreya and he he presents one thing that I found very very interesting. He says there Please completely explain the workings of this universe, of the material manifestation, so that I can realize them. Because by such realizations, I will attain the detachment whereby I can enter into a full appreciation of the Leela of the Lord. So, and we've I quoted something earlier in the class, the same thing Vishnu, Vish, Vishwanath brought up in a commentary to that effect, that this knowledge, this Sambandha Gyan, is the pathway whereby then the Leela becomes easy and comprehensible and, and fully appreciatable. It's, it's not that we just immediately go for the Leela and expect to be entered into those mysteries until we've until we have the you know this this knowledge of of sambanda of how the lord it it all it all fits together if we can if we can grasp these basic concepts then we can enter into into the ideas until those are properly established you're going to have a hard time entering into the ideas that swami puts forward when he's talking about the way the cowherd boys are are relating to each other and the and the and the bhava, their loving exchanges between one another. You think, well, I, I can understand love. There's a mystery to this bhakti, and the mystery is we start at the beginning in the first canto and we work our way up to the tenth canto. Now along the way, we're going to come and we're going to bump up against sages and gurus who are automatically going to be completely absorbed in those. Leelas and the, and and the Leela Granta and explaining that to us in in the most profound way and we're ca- you know we're just we're thrilled to hear those things and it captures our heart but the that doesn't mean that we immediately say well let me let me am I chanting in such a way that I'm hearing all that I'm chanting. I still need to deal with such a such a deep foundational understanding of the Lord's external energy and how he how he does that so that the anarthas the offenses to my chanting which are are prohibiting me from diving into the leela and 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 vi- envisioning the leela when I'm chanting the holy name that's not happening by chance it's not by chance. Krishna's not like, you know, barred the door, put bars on the door and said, no, you're not allowed in the Leela. No, you just need to get through. You need to get, you need to go through these stages of advancing sadhana bhakti. And we'll get there step by step. 
And we get there by by this strong grounding. And even Vidura, he's he come on, Vidura? Somebody like Vidura is saying, Please teach me about material nature so that what? So that I can enter into an appreciation of the Lord's Leela. And this is Vidura. So go figure. And you can figure. That's what we're here to do. We're right here to have classes and figure all this out. <laughs> we'll conclude this part of the Anacheda with Jiva Goswami's conclusions. So we've seen, uh, hey, uh, you know, uh, hey to a boss. Uh, logic just doesn't make sense. The middle doesn't distribute to the beginning and the end properly. So that's not the conclusion. So basically what's being said is, these Vivartavads, they're saying this, but there's a way to understand it where you'll see, and that's what we'll get into in our next couple discussions, that actually there is value to the world as there is value to Brahman. So the world is sought. It may not be the same. It may go through changes and modifications. But it's not an illusion because it doesn't have those characteristics. And that's those, those different explanations of how it doesn't have those characteristics like silver in an oyster, which isn't a real currency. You can't spend it or like counterfeit money. So all these things are going to be brought out as we go forward. But Jiva, the conclusion here is, she, Jiva Goswami interprets these Shruti prayers as supporting the following conclusions. One, the universe is not a mere appearance, vivarta, like a snake misperceived in a rope or silver in an oyster shell. So it's more than that. It's more than things that are clearly an illusion. It's clearly the, the silver in the oyster shell. You're not going to be able to take that into the jewelry store and get paid. You're not going to put it on the scale. You're not going to scrape it off. It's not there. It's an illusion. That is an illusion. Or the snake, mistaking a rope for a snake. You could be afraid, but once you get your wits about, you turn on the lights, you realize, oh, it was just a rope to begin with. It cannot bite you. You're not going to have to run to the hospital because the rope bit you. Second thing. The universe is real because it has come from a real source or cause. This is Jiva's second conclusion. And the third is the universe has different qualities from those of its source. All right. Brahman. It is not a parinam of Brahman itself. It's not a modification of Brahman itself, but of the potency Shakti of Brahman. Any questions? Thank you for the class. I, my question is, uh, when we're endeavoring to do all this uh, understanding, um, is this uh, internally going to stay with us lifetime after lifetime? Is this something that will... Is, we're not wasting our time because when we die, we'll forget all this. Or if we get Alzheimer's, <laughs> in our old age, we'll forget all this, mm -hmm. right? 
first of all, the the act of simply hearing and and applying our intellect to the practice of bhakti and the and the philosophy of bhakti is bhakti. So, and Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita that there's love, no loss or diminution. So, will you attain all of the detailed knowledge? You attain those detailed that detailed knowledge that will that'll nourish your future bhakti. So you even notice that in your own life of bhakti. You there's a certain you may have been at a certain point where you were acquainting yourself just with certain slokas and you memorized those and now thirty years later it's like I can't even remember the basic sloka, but that doesn't mean it didn't it doesn't stay with you. The bhakti that you used at that time, the bhakti you exerted, the the energy you exerted to to do that, it's never lost. It's no dimination. No loss or diminution. It's all good. Yeah, so this is not really like, although we're, we're really exercising our inner intellect as pretty strenuously, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's not really like an intellectual exercise, like if you were learning math or something. I mean, we've been here now, we've been discussing, you know, for over 200 lectures on these Sandarbhas, how much how much retention is there? There's not a there's not a lot of retention going on, but in one way, but in another way, the essence of that knowledge and what's been presented has had a profound effect on the way the way we the way what we what we take away from other scriptural readings that we embark upon. Yeah. You can't say it doesn't have an effect. It has a very profound effect. It's not like intellectualization that's required to pass a, an exam with uh, right and wrong answers and, and uh, uh, multiple choice, what to speak of. But you could probably write an essay. You could probably sit down and write an essay and say, well, Jiva Goswami, from the Siddharvas I've seen, I've learned a few things. You could probably write a few pages of what what I've come away with, the significance of the way Jiva has pulled Sambandhavide and Prayojan from the Bhagavatam and how he's used the Bhagavatam as his primary you know, source of not. So all that fundamental knowledge is there. The details, you may have to go back and look at the Nanocheta or two and if you're writing a specific article and, and re, reacquaint yourself with the arguments. But the overall... Knowledge is something that's uh, that's seeped in and, and changed the way you execute bhakti and the way you take advantage of uh, the angas of bhakti to further advance. Just like those that worship the deity, it's come away with something. You've come away with a true service attitude, a true, complete, and total submission to to pleasing the form of the Lord in that way, and that's that's very significant. So whether we're using our brain for Krishna, or using our, our eyes and our ears, or our ability to dress, or our ability to clean, or cook, or whatever it is, uh, we're walking away with something more substantial. This is just the intellectual part, Jiva Goswami, he's the Tattva Acharya, so... It's uh, it's an interesting approach for those people that like it. Other people could come to this class and it's like, whoa, that's not for me. Uh, 
Let me go back to the Leela. That's fine too. We have to find what nourishes our spiritual practice. But we need to give everything a chance. And we'll find those things. And then we'll rise gradually from the state of anista to steadiness and from steadiness to ruchi. At ruchi, you pick and choose. Yeah, I like this kirtan leader. I like this book. I like... I like to dress. I don't like classes. You, you, you can make some choices, you, you, but you still have to do all that uh, in consultation with the guru. Does that answer? Yes, thank you. All right, I'll stop there. Thank you so much for your association. Thank you.